Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we explore political figures known as strongmen with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a historian at NYU who has just pub- published a book uh, discussing precisely that phenomenon. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. She writes on authoritarian leaders, fascism, and propaganda. She's a regular commentator to for CNN and other news and analysis sites. She appears frequently on radio, podcasts, and television, television and is quoted in news stories around the world on threats to democracy and how to counter them. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. So tomorrow, uh, you're officially, uh, uh, officially tomorrow, you're publishing a book with the title Strongmen that analyzes that phenomenon from Mussolini to the present, as the subtitle has it. Why are we seeing such a spread of the strongman phenomenon in contemporary global politics today? I I think that uh, there are people who go back to 2008, um, the recession and the rise of kind of far-right populist movements. Um, That certainly has something to do with it. Um, I think that there's also been a disaffection with democracy. And I also think that the... Uh, the way that authoritarianism works today, where you have far fewer one-party states and more states in which it's uh, evolution and not revolution, where they get in through elections and gradually over time concentrate their power and consolidate their power. And that makes it easier to live with this kind of illiberal rule than when you had the days of a military coup or a fascist takeover. So why is this a male phenomenon? I mean, I I have read a little bit in the book and, you know, you obviously are using a term that has a gendered character to it. Um, And you make a, you know, significant amount of the gender characteristics of this sort of political personality. And of course, we've had a lot of attention in the course of the pandemic to female leaders who seem to have, you know, done a good job by their citizens, Angela Merkel in Germany, uh, uh, Lucinda, or I forgot now her first name, Ardern in uh, New Zealand. So what's the gender side of this story. What I do in the book is I I kind of lay out the playbook of the tools of rule that they have been used for a hundred years. And there's propaganda, there's corruption, there's violence, there's the myth of national greatness. But I also I added a chapter on virility or machismo because you know when we see Putin strutting around with his shirt off, um, it's easy to just laugh at this. Or, or many people admire it, but I think it's important to take it seriously because male domination and this ethos of mat- macho lawlessness is really at the center of authoritarian rule. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be a woman in the future uh, who will destroy democracy. There have been plenty of ty- tyrants in, in the past of the global history who are female. 
Um, and I conclude saying that in the future, we may see a far right uh, authoritarian, um, you know, state that's headed by a woman. So it's not that women uh, are morally better than men, um, but the, the phenomenon as we've been seeing it, of the strong men ruler, and I use that term to refer not only to somebody who damages or destroys democracy, but who actively uses this kind of machismo, not only for um, politics of intimidation and threat and propaganda, but also in his um, foreign relations, these personal bonds with other rulers. And this is important to the strongman bond. Think of Putin and Erdogan and all of these, um, Trump and Netanyahu, all of these like kind of uh, romances, as people say. So so those that kind of demonstrative virility would go away um, with a female leader, but the rest of the tool book would not. Um, I, I'm pretty certain of that. Right. So I want to go back to something you said uh, in response to my first question, and it was it had to do with uh, your argument or your claim that people have gotten sour, basically, on democracy. I wonder if you could expand on that and say a little bit more about, you know, what you mean and, and why that's the case. Yeah, I mean, there's a myriad analyses of, uh, you know, why that is. What I found in my historical study, I'm not a political scientist, um, but one of the reasons I wrote the book was to find these patterns. And um, one of the patterns that emerges most clearly is that these kinds of rulers find favor um, at times when there's been a lot of progress in emancipation. It could be gender emancipation, could be racial emancipation, class, um, you know, fear of, of the left in the 1920s and early 30s. Um, and this is when um, there's a sensation that some other kind of, of law and order rule is needed to kind of, sometimes it's turning the clock back. Of course, it's also a, a, an alternate way to modernize. But um, so that that's one, that's a kind of historical route. And we saw that in America in 2016 with this. Some ne some people never got over the affront of having Barack Obama as president for eight years. And the demographic, another huge recurrence is fear of demographic change, which is, again, related to racial emancipation. So disaffection with democracy, there are, there are issues of... Um, you know, economic inequality, which are very, very high right now. Think of all the protests in 2019 around the world. And that leads, uh, so economic reasons certainly lead some people to far-right parties. But these kind of fantasies of national purity and feeling that you can have a refuge in this kind of strongman rule and this crisis politics that you want to savior um, to solve your problems uh, often by scapegoating others. These are very powerful sentiments which recur for a hundred years all over the world. And so we need to factor them in when we think about why there are these recurring phases in which democracy doesn't have the same appeal.
Uh, I'm curious how you would see uh, Donald Trump's position in the context of the broader historical framework that you've just been laying out. I mean, the United States is often seen as this exceptional nation, as having, you know, its own path in, in the world and that sort of thing. How do you see what's been happening here against the background of all the other people you've studied and written about? I see him very much as an American instance of the way that authoritarianism is unfolding today. And he's used the playbook of corruption, incitements to violence, of certainly of machismo, of propaganda. He's an unparalleled propagandist, very, very successfully to build a personality cult, which has the same structure and rules as many of those. And he's done this without full state control of media. So his achievement is is all the greater in, in this area. I also see him as conforming to... Um, a type of a subset of authoritarian rule called personalist rule, where the leader, the leader's personal financial needs and judicial woes and um, interests and obsessions become um, the center of party policy. They become the center of sometimes foreign policy deals with other despots. And they also uh, set the tone for media coverage. And when you have personalist rule and, and this can happen in democracy. And Berlusconi in Italy, who ruled off and on in the early 2000s, is the pioneer of the uh, template that Trump has enacted, where he never destroyed democracy. He severely crippled it. Berlusconi was able to pass dozens of ad personam laws that, like, for example, when he would get accused of bribery, he would have a law passed that made bribery a lesser offense, and on and on and on with this. So this is personalist rule and Trump's domestication of the GOP and his absolute monopoly of the media landscape where everybody sits and says, what's Trump going to do today? And all attention is focused on him. This is, these are kind of indexes of personalist rule. So in his temperament, in his governing style, um, in his intentions, even though they weren't fulfilled, he has absolutely continued um, the tradition of authoritarian rule, and we haven't yet we haven't yet digested the scope of what he has done to our institutions with the kind of passive purges and active purges of the civil service, domestication of the judiciary with William Barr. All of this we it still awaits to be processed and digested. I would say. Nor have we, as far as I'm aware, in American history ever had a situation in which a uh, sitting president um, responded to his uh, you know, failure to be reelected by saying that the uh, election was essentially a fraud, uh, which Donald Trump stood up and did in, in a press conference on Thursday, last Thursday night. Uh, and I thought it was a, an astounding moment that we were living through and, and that if somebody were allowed to get away with this kind of um, rejection of popular will, I mean, the game would, so to speak, be over. So I wonder how you see that, um, how you see his refusal to concede the, you know, that he's lost the election and what kinds of, you know, things might play out in the course of this next uh, lame duck period until January 20th. I wasn't at all surprised that he's refusing to concede that uh, today there's the announcement he's running again, he's going to have, you know, rallies. Um, and I really think that we we have not, we've been using 
a framework of democracy to analyze the actions of someone who is not interested in democracy, who is interested in autocratic rule of the type that all of the leaders he admires have pulled off. While he's been in office, Putin's been able to amend the constitution to be there till 2036, and now Orban rules by decree. And those people have been there a long time. And so I, sometimes people say, well, how can you say he's an authoritarian? You know, you're talking and, you know, there's fake news. And, but they forget that these people started somewhere and it took them quite a while to evolve into what we see today. So uh, as for the trying to say that the election was fraudulent, you know, Berlusconi did the same thing when he was defeated in 2006 after five years. They have a different system. Um, he claimed it was fraudulent and he immediately started planning his comeback and he got back into office in 2008 and was more corrupt than ever. So the lesson is, you know, these people don't necessarily go away. And what I always say is once they get into office, it's very hard to get them out. Now we have voted him out, but it's a very delicate period that we are awaiting, not only because of his temperament. I just published a Washington Post op-ed today about how this type of leader, they just can't handle failure and they don't have good exits from power. But also his followers, when you've had a personality cult of the magnitude of his, he's still got 70 million people to vote for him. And, you know, they say things like, I'd take a bullet for him. There's a woman who said, I wade for, I'd wade through a sea of COVID for Trump. And, and these are kind of, you know, it's a cult, a personality cult. And so they are in a very delicate moment as well because their leader, who's their mainstay of their lives, has been displaced. So all of this victimhood, the cult of victimhood is very important for these leaders. That will continue and be milked all the more now that he's in distress. And people feel protective of these leaders, which can be hard to grasp because they're such bullies. But people feel very protective of their leader. So I think we're in for an unstable time. He's going to do everything he can, not only legally, but you know, with propaganda, like the themes I just described. So uh, I didn't know about the Washington Post op-ed. So tell me a little bit about how you see the exit pads. I mean, it's many people have talked about his possible influence, you know, in the post-Trump era, that he'll be a kingmaker and this sort of thing, that he may run again himself in 2024. Um, but that all seems to me to ignore the, you know, likely financial and legal peril in which he is about to find himself. And, you know, it's the, it seems to me some people have noted that uh, some parts of his thinking now are, you know, are governed or are, are sort of determined by uh, his concern about what kind of legal difficulties he's likely to face. So I wonder, you know, maybe you could talk about your op-ed and tell us a little bit more about what's in it and how you see, you know, an exit path, um, because it does also seem to me that, you know, insofar as it is clear that he has actually lost this election, um, I think the institutions of the United States are going to be strong enough to see to it that he leaves. Um, but maybe you see that differently. So I'd be interested in hearing your, you know, what you what you think about his exit paths. Yeah, I um, the op-ed really was about it's about um, how the whole structure of this personalist rule that these leaders set up um, contributes to 
their shock that they are going to be booted out of office because they they create these kind of inner sanctums uh, full of flatterers and family members, son-in-laws, in order to surround themselves with only the reality that they want to hear. And this, you know, causes them to make very bad decisions over and over again. And they be, they are destructive, but they become self-destructive. And the, you know, a good maxim is that sometimes they're the last to know that they are ripe for a fall because they live in this cocoon of their own propaganda and they famously don't take any counsel. If you recall, uh, Trump was asked early on, maybe even in, during his campaign, who he consults with on foreign policy. And he said, I consult with myself because I have my own big, beautiful brain. And this is the solipsism of the strongman. And, and so the structure of this personalist governments where everybody's there because of loyalty, not expertise, leads them to um, not be able to prepare for succession. You don't mention, this is why, again, Putin has put himself, he would be in his 90s, uh, by the time he left office or even older. And they all, and this is also to avoid prosecution. So it's very much on Trump's mind to stay in office so he can keep immunity and to keep the situation where the Senate uh, voted to acquit him for impeachment. And one of the most significant things I read at that time was an op-ed by Cheryl Brown, who went around and interviewed his fellow senators. Uh, he's a Democrat. They interviewed Republicans. And all of them said that they voted off, they wouldn't identify themselves, but they said they voted out of fear. So when you have senators, very powerful men, uh, voting out of fear to acquit Trump, you have a situation that I don't see as a very democratic governance. So he's been used to this degree of power and bullying and humiliation. And so this makes it very hard for him to imagine a future in which he doesn't have the same. Interesting. So, um, you know, back to the issue of uh, the larger international context. I mean, I wonder how you see the impact of Trump's apparent fall um, uh, you know, for other strong men around the world, the kind of people that he's been cozying up to in the course of these last four or five years and for longer in, in many cases. Um, you know, Putin, you've mentioned, uh, Xi Jinping, he also seemed to rather admire, of course, Kim Jong-un. Um, you know, how, how does, how has the world changed for people like that as a result of these developments? Well, um, you know, some of them came out immediately, like Modi and Netanyahu, with a warm message of welcome for Biden and Harris. And these are transactional people. Um, Authoritarian-minded leaders are the ultimate uh, opportunists. And, you know, we like to see them as having a master plan, but they're just opportunists and transactional. So whoever's in, they'll deal with. Now, somebody like Putin, it's a bit different because uh, of the financial um, hold he's always had um, indirectly uh, on the Trump organization. You know, we can recall that before 2015, both Eric and Donald Jr. said very openly to the press that they didn't need any money because they had Russian money. And then they also had Deutsche Bank, of course. But um, so... 
but at the same time, uh, Russian television has been mocking Trump. So this is the the kind of alpha male. There's every you know there's a kind of lack of respect for leaders who kowtow to you. So Trump has Trump has been mocked openly. There was even a skit on Russian television where Trump was wearing a dog tag that read, you know, if lost, send to Putin. So, so this is, uh, the, Putin is going to lose this. And of course, it was, you know, better than I do. This is why they didn't want Clinton in, in the first place. But um, there's also an interesting uh, item. I don't know if it's confirmed, but that Bolsonaro was considering not running for uh, office again. Um, and he has been, uh, he has not given a welcome yet to Biden. So there is the, uh, with, when you asked the beginning, why are there so many strongmen? There is the, the factor of contagion or example where the more uh, one has success in destroying international codes and human rights and pulling out of packs, the more others feel legitimated to do illegal things. Um, and there has been this attempt by Trump to take us out of one democratically oriented system and put us into another. And this is something we will have to reckon with. He's, he's done enormous damage internationally. So it remains to be seen uh, what how much of this can be reversed. I know that one of the first things that Biden's going to do is get back into the climate accords and begin the rapprochement process uh in in certain sectors so what institutions do you, you know uh, do, do you think it's most important to reform in order to you know constrain or prevent more authoritarians from taking over their countries and perhaps most particularly the united states i mean you know it's not lost on anybody that um, Trump has governed by Twitter, uh, by tweet, and you know people find out that they've been fired because uh, it goes out on Twitter, not because they've received any official statement from him uh, or policies are announced. You know, in however number of characters you're allowed to have on Twitter these days. Um, so I wonder, you know whether you think that's the key to a lot of this or is that, you know, something that's happened before with other technologies. And uh, I, I just wonder what you would say as far as institutional reforms that you think are most important in terms of uh, putting a stop to this kind of takeover of democratic societies. Um, the example you gave of the person who finds out they're fired on Twitter is actually, I have a, uh, this, this is consistent with the strongman's need to humiliate uh, other men publicly. And so one of the kind of um, divide and rule, that's the strategy where you, you, know, you keep everybody uncertain about their jobs so they can't band together against you. And Mussolini used to uh, use the newspaper. So his head of his party in 1931 found out he was fired in the newspaper. And Mobutu in the Congo used to hold rallies um, and announce, you know, with everybody sitting in the front row, announce in front of everybody who was fired. And so Trump uses Twitter and you had Rex Tillerson who reportedly, you know, read about his firing when he was on the toilet scrolling through Twitter. So these are mechanisms of, of, uh, of rituals of humiliation that strongmen relish that 
this example of how the book is designed to show what stays the same um, and what changes. So here we have media that change, but the uh, dynamic of governance stays the same. Um, In terms of what should be reformed, what I decided to focus on in the book are actually um, two sectors that have propped up uh, strongmen and allowed them to, um, you know, to rule. And one is, um, you know, foreign banks <laughs> and the architecture of, of secrecy around banking, which used to be Swiss bank accounts in the era of, you know, Cold War and uh, until 2018, really. Um, but also offshore, where you have the example of, uh, you know, Pinochet and, of course, Putin, uh, who had you know millions and millions of dollars? Putin has billions uh, in offshore accounts. So the United States is obviously part of this. The Maloney Act was passed that it makes it harder now to be anonymous. But until 2019, and it doesn't govern uh, things open. It grandfather's in all accounts before 2019. So the, unless we reform the secrecy that allows these these hypocrites uh, like Putin and Erdogan and Orban, they claim they're anti-globalist and then they keep their money in global accounts. They get their money out of their country. So that's one area that needs reform. The other thing I highlight is foreign PR companies and American PR has propped up every dictator, right-wing dictator from uh, Mussolini through Franco had a, a huge crew of um, PR firms working for him to rehabilitate him so he wasn't seen as a fascist and he became the perfect Cold War client. Up through Erdogan, who has five different American PR firms working for him. So I think we need a cultural shift to encourage international law firms and um, PR firms and lobbyists if they're serious about protecting democracy, then perhaps they shouldn't work for these people because Putin was Time's man of the year because Ketchum, his PR company, lobbied so hard for him to be. So that's what those are the areas I decided to single out in the book because I think they don't get enough attention. I see. I mean, I know you're busy with um, engagements uh, in connection with the release of the book, but I do have one more question that I'd like to ask you, and, and that has to do with the um, Fox News connection. Uh, many people have observed that uh, there seems to be a, a kind of withdrawal of the mandate of heaven on the part from from Trump uh, on the part of Rupert Murdoch. Uh, I wonder how you know important you see that as being, and what you think the implications are. I I have a bit of you know I would see that with a grain of salt because are our standards that low that just because Rupert Murdoch said okay let's recognize this actual legal vote he's now a good guy um, you know Fox News uh, will continue as it is still doing with its star hosts, um, Hannity and Ingraham and Carlson, who draw too many viewers to be dispensable. So it will continue, as it was before Trump, to be uh, a factory of right-wing propaganda, of anti-democratic propaganda. I don't see that changing. In fact, Trump could have a closer... He, he was getting fed up with them 
uh, at points because he needs absolute loyalty. But one thing I would like to point out that's um, different, Trump is different than all other leaders I've studied because even Berlusconi, who owned TV networks and was truly a master of television, that medium, he read, he read books and he read his briefing papers and his dossiers uh, that his aides prepared for him. Trump doesn't read. And I believe his first wife, Ivana, who said that he had two books in his bedroom, he had Art of the Deal and Hitler's Speeches. Um, so Trump is not only, um, you know, normally there's like the leader and then the uh, allied media or state media will echo what he says. Trump, because he gets all of his information about the world from TV, he's actually got a feedback loop with Fox News that's been very effective, where sometimes he parrots what they say. So Sean Hannity has been in some ways a co-producer of the Trump presidency. And this is unique uh, in our history because we haven't had a man in power uh, who's so television obsessed as Trump. Even Reagan wasn't anything close to Trump in this in this sector. Right. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much. I want to bring this to a close. I want to thank uh, Ruth Ben-Ghiat for sharing her insights about strong men in connection with the publication of her new book with that title uh, about strong men around the world and, of course, in the United States itself. I want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance. And this is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us again for the next episode of International Horizons.